Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. There is psychopathology that was driven by the military-industrial complex that Americans have never analyzed, never to this day analyzed. Why did that happen? A memoir of how American and Soviet doctors worked together to prevent the medical catastrophe of nuclear war. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. This is the tale of how physicians on both sides of the Cold War divide reached out to each other to stop what they saw as the madness of the nuclear arms race. The seed was planted in 1946 when the New Yorker magazine devoted a full issue to interviews with survivors of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan that claimed 120,000 lives a year earlier. The article was read by Bernard Lown, brilliant 25-year-old doctor who had emigrated to America from Lithuania at age 13 and would later receive the Nobel Prize. It was a searing story that had not been told. The magnitude of the horror, the capacity of human beings for the first time to make life on Earth unlivable. But uh, to be honest, it didn't penetrate. The story was told and I suppressed it. I didn't respond in terms of action, translation into deeds. It was there a sort of meandering anxiety in the back of mine. What if a warning siren sounds? What should you do? Look for cover, the nearest cover. Don't try to make it home unless home is the nearest place to go. Don't hesitate, find cover. Finding shelter quickly may save your life. If you can't get into a house, get behind a wall or a steep embankment on the side away from the city. An instructional film shown in elementary schools in the 1950s, one of many frightening messages Americans heard about the terrible destructive power of nuclear warfare. It formed the backdrop for an age of apprehension, that fueled the armaments buildup of the Cold War between Soviet Russia and the United States. 
Dr. Lowne didn't take up the problem of nuclear war until the early 1960s, when he was a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. At that point in my life, I was nearly at an apogee of a, of a career in medicine. I had focused on the issue of sudden cardiac death. Now, sudden cardiac death is the leading cause of fatality in the United States. It claims probably a life every 90 seconds around the clock. It comes unannounced. And in 25% of patients, it's the first indication of having any heart disease. The thinking in medicine at the time was that sudden death was the end stage of advanced heart disease. My research led me to an opposite conclusion, that it was an electrical accident that was reversible and preventable. And I went on to develop the defibrillator, which revolutionized the practice of medicine by virtue of this concept. That's what the EMTs might yes, bring. Yes, what you see all over. A defibrillator uses electrodes affixed to a heart patient's chest. It delivers an electrical charge that can restore heartbeat, saving the patient's life. Dr. Lown also developed a machine that can correct rhythmic disturbances of the heartbeat. While working on these cardiac devices in the early 1960s, he was invited to a lecture by Philip Noel Baker, a British Quaker and Nobel Peace Prize winner, who discussed a very different type of technology. The story is recounted in Lowndes' memoir, Prescription for Survival. I was preoccupied with the problem of sudden cardiac death, and uh, attending and listening to Philip Noel Baker made me realize that what was confronting humankind was not sudden cardiac death, but sudden nuclear death. And that's when I called together a number of doctors right here in this room. We're sitting in your living room. And these doctors were young Harvard docs of the Brigham, the Beth Israel, and the Mass General. And we'd come and meet here every two weeks and try to ponder. At first, they were uneasy, skeptical. What could doctors do? Was it legitimate to do- for doctors to concern themselves with these social political issues? And my argument was, I think, eventually persuasive that human survival is not a political issue. It's a medical issue. Hammering away, it's a medical issue. If your patients die, it's ultimately a health issue, a challenge to you as a profession. So we were meeting, and there was a sense of desperation because we began to understand the magnitude of the issue, the instability of the nuclear establishment, the fact that it was a house of cards that had to collapse. What should we do? House of cards in the sense of? In the sense that nuclear arms were accumulating, and the very nature of nuclear weapons is that you have to strike first. Because you're you have no to, longer around to strike in retaliation. Yes, because if you strike first, 
you diminish this, do away with the silos of the opponent and therefore delimit the harm, the, the destruction that you confront. So you have to strike first. The other one knows that you've built up more, so the other is building up more. There's another reality, the reality that nuclear weapons were placed on missiles. And missiles traverse from Russia to the United States, and conversely, takes about 25 minutes. So if you get a signal, missiles are coming. Are there flight of geese? Are there wrong radar signals? Is there atmospheric turbulence? What is it? but you have only 25 minutes. How do you resolve that? So increasingly, infallible computers built by fallible human beings were supposed to sort out this information and, and respond appropriately. It was sooner or later, if you look through the history of the era, in retrospect now, you find there were numerous false alarms where we came just to the very edge of the brick. According to the Global Security Institute, thousands of nuclear warheads remain on high alert, which means once launched, they cannot be recalled. There have been more than 20 recorded cases of false alarms, including computer glitches, where nuclear explosions were narrowly avoided. And if accidental war isn't frightening enough, the world came to the precipice of intentional confrontation between nuclear-armed countries when American surveillance spotted Soviet bases in Cuba, as announced by President John F. Kennedy in October 1962. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Several of them include medium-range ballistic missiles capable of carrying a nuclear warhead for a distance of more than 1,000 nautical miles. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States, in Central America, or in the Caribbean area. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate range. So what we did is decide to be absolutely brutally frank with the American public. Bomb Boston virtually and extrapolate the medical consequences. So what would it actually be like? What would be the physical damage, the medical damage, well, the psychiatric damage? Were, God forbid a city like Boston actually a target of a nuclear attack. But remember that Boston would not be the individual target. There would be hundreds of other places targeted. So Boston couldn't turn for help the way Hiroshima or Nagasaki. There was nothing, no help forthcoming anywhere. When a little plane, commuter plane, from the Cape crashed and burned, 
Cape Cod, and there were 20 people burned. It nearly exhausted the resources of Boston. Boston, huge health establishment. Now, look, a bomb falls on Boston with a 3 million population at the time of greater Boston. 1 million are killed instantly. 1 million are fatally injured and will die in painfully beyond belief uh, of the horror of the death. 500,000 would be injured but not die. To attend these million and a half people both dying and potentially living, there would be 1,000 doctors left alive out of 6,000 Boston doctors. Now, if a doctor attended to a patient and took 10 minutes to attend, and each doctor would then have 1,700 patients that are critically injured. Imagine the intensive care unit when a doctor takes care of two, three patients and he's overwhelmed. Now he has 1,700. Many of them burn to a crisp. Many of them vomiting from radiation sickness and having diarrhea flowing. Many of them injured beyond belief from flying objects and broken limbs and broken ribs lying there without medicine, without surgical supplies, without oxygen, without transport, without electricity, without any resources. Now you're a primitive Neanderthal in a cave, and you have to take care of a catastrophe of this magnitude. And the psychological devastation of people who've just undergone such a trauma. The psychological devastation is beyond belief. Nothing ever happening to humankind would be in parallel. You can extrapolate from nothing. Because not only is it a situation of despair, but it's hopelessness. There's no hope. No help is going to come from anywhere. And in this situation, the immune response lowered from radiation. Now you're susceptible to all types of viruses and autoimmune responses. We're talking with physician Bernard Lown, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize and author of Prescription for Survival. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, The Doctor's Movement to Avert Nuclear War, visit our website, humanmedia.org. The Physician Study Group analyzing the medical effects of nuclear war published their provocative findings in the New England Journal of Medicine in a groundbreaking article in 1962. Dr. Bernard Lau. We said for a disease for which there is no cure, prevention is the only proper approach. Prevention of nuclear war is on the agenda of the medical profession as a great priority. We further pointed out there was no place to hide. You know, at that time, you go back in American history, what were Americans doing? They were building underground shelters, and the Kennedy administration was encouraging them. Here's a clean, well-prepared shelter in the basement. They have soda ash and stirrup pump fire extinguishers, a flashlight, a well-equipped first aid kit with plenty of bandages, tape and scissors, a Red Cross first aid book, 
a few cans of food, a good supply of water, blankets, and an electric lantern in reserve. If you're on the playground, run for shelter. If you're in the schoolyard, get into the building. Move quickly, but in good order. Inside, go to the shelter The conclusion area. of our study was vivid. That the worst place to be in case of nuclear war is in an underground shelter. Because, in effect, you'll be incinerated there from the firestorms. The firestorms will exhaust oxygen and you'll be asphyxiated, and that has been the experience of Dresden, Hamburg, Tokyo, that face firestorms. But these weren't nuclear firestorms. We have no way of imagining a nuclear firestorm compared to those. Raging at 200 miles per hour, traveling fires engulfing everything in sight. With objects traveling Human bodies become missiles. So in the wake of a nuclear attack, no place to hide. Exactly. I understand one of your daughters started having nightmares while you were working on this study. Yes, my daughter Anne, who was then about 10 years old or something like that, I said to Annie, you help me. I mean, figuring out how many hospital beds there were, how many doctors there were to do some calculations. I felt desperate because my children knew what I was doing, what I was thinking. And I knew also that the way to assuage anxiety is to engage them in activity, in some way countermeasures to this. So I tried to get my children some way involved in this. But this was traumatic for her? She now says she had nightmares. All my other children say the same. They had nightmares till their adulthood because of this activity of mine. Today, an estimated 44 countries have access to the fissile materials needed to build nuclear arms. There are 30,000 of these weapons in the world, the vast majority in the United States and Russia, but some are found in China, Great Britain, France, Pakistan, India, and Israel. Radioactive materials generated by detonating or testing nuclear arms remain in the Earth's ecosystem for thousands of years. This spooky arsenal poses an incomprehensible threat to the very survival of humanity. Dr. Bernard Lown. I think that there is something profoundly evil. The reason I say it's evil is this is what we inherited from the Nazis. This mentality of firebombing of cities this mentality of collateral damage, where we developed a language to sort of protect us psychologically, collateral damage. When you kill women and children, it's collateral damage. So using attacks on civilians as a tactic of war to terrorize the population. That started with World War II. And now we have lost all sense. Can you imagine stockpiling genocidal weapons? Look. At the height of the Cold War, we had 16, we and the Russians had 16,000 megatons. 16,000 megatons of 
nuclear destructive power. To give you a sense of, of, of size, magnitude, during World War II, terrible war that claimed 50 million victims, it was 11. 11. 11. Now we have 16,000. You know what a megaton is? A megaton is a million tons of dynamite. A million tons of dynamite to be transported by a train. The train would be 400 kilometers long. I mean, try to get a sense of this. That's what we were stockpiling, we and the Russians. It made no sense. This was a social, political psychosis. Why was there such a buildup if the extent of it was so unnecessary? Well, why are you asking it of me? I'm a potential victim. You're asking me this question. Why are people's, if some psychotic behavior is going on in some institution, why do you turn to the innocent observer like myself and say, why is it going on? Because there's psychopathology that was driven by the military-industrial complex that the Americans have never analyzed, never to this day analyzed, why did that happen? Because if that happened, it shows something extraordinarily wrong. And because we made a Faustian bargain during World War II and afterward with the military. And that is what Eisenhower spoke about so movingly in his farewell address. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, January 17, 1961. He warned America, he says, the greatest danger you face is the military-industrial complex that will distort your politics, distort your economics. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I mean, you look at the crisis today, it's related to that. And nobody will make that connection. No media, nowhere do I see that connection. Another point, when you ask Americans about this period, they say it was worthwhile. It was worth it because we won the Cold War. That's a fabrication. That's an delusional thinking. We lost the Cold War. We lost it so badly. The Russians lost it worse, but we lost it. Look, the cost. The cost of the Cold War was more than $11 trillion. 
11 trillion dollars if you take out of an economy that explains why our kids don't know how to read and write that explains why our inner cities are in crisis the cold war also explains the imperial presidency and the imperial presidency was a absolute exigent reason from from the arms race because you had to have a president makes immediate decisions has power beyond belief because you haven't got time to consult well when the soviet union collapsed in the late 1980s the massive military buildup including in nuclear weaponry under president ronald reagan was widely credited as the leading cause for the collapse of the Soviet Union. How do you see that? I see that as complete distortion of history, complete distortion of history. The point is, I am not a politician, economist. I traveled to the Soviet Union about 30 times. In 1980, I was certain the Soviet Union is not going to last. I knew that. I knew that because it wouldn't last in the form that it was. I didn't know what was going to happen. That was the year Reagan was elected. Yeah. And that began my journeying to Moscow. I had at least 30 of them. And I began to see that because as a doctor, I go into a coronary care unit and I see equipment like monitoring, defibrillators, cardioverters, pacemakers, most of them dysfunctional. To take blood samples, they didn't have modern equipment. They didn't have uh, vacutainers. They didn't have adequate syringes. They didn't have, in many of their hospitals, they didn't have water, hot water, cold water, flush toilets. They didn't have any of that. I, I began to see the breakdown, the fact of their society. Furthermore, young people in their society who had done any travel knew that they were falling behind, falling behind, falling behind, and were very restive. And I knew that in another generation it'll change. And it made no sense to have a Cold War that threatens human survival because the threat of communism, because I was sure that it wasn't going to last. So if I knew that, how come the brighter people who were making a life of analyzing the Soviet Union didn't understand that? You're saying... By the time Reagan entered office. Oh, yeah. But Brezhnev era. Brezhnev era was stagnant. Nothing was happening. Soviet society was moving. And a great deal of lying. Everybody was lying. Lying because they were too embarrassed to confront the truth. You've quoted Albert Einstein as saying, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything save our modes of thinking. Do you feel we've made the conceptual leap since Einstein said that over half a century ago? No. Because had we, we wouldn't face the various crises we are facing today. A crisis in terms of climate change that we haven't addressed. We haven't dealt with the nuclear issue. Dr. Bernard Laun, author of Prescription for Survival, His efforts with American and Soviet physicians to prevent nuclear war earned the 1985 Nobel Prize for Peace. The only way to have a world deserving of human beings is begin 
to utilize the enormous possibilities of science and technology to create an abundant life, which we can do readily. We can provide everybody with clean water. We can provide everybody with health care. We can provide everybody with a job. We can provide everybody with a productive, cultured life. Why don't we do that? Why? Isn't it time we ask that question? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Kathy Graham, Tony Buck, the Prelinger Archives, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum, and the Global Security Institute. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with the Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part one of the Doctor's Movement to Avert Nuclear War with Bernard Laun, is Humankind Program number 132. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.